I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is strategic advisor and author Jack J. Hirsch, author of Death March Escape, the remarkable story of a man who twice escaped the Nazi Holocaust. Surviving one Nazi death march is amazing. Surviving two is astonishing. But escaping from both is nothing short of a miracle. Jack Hirsch grew up hearing the stories of how his father, Dave Hirsch, twice escaped the brutal death marches forced on concentration camp prisoners by the Nazis at the end of World War II. More than a memoir, biography, or history, his new book is a page-turning account of what it takes to survive with your soul intact and to never surrender. uh, Jack Hirsch is an expert in the field of troubled and distressed companies and has guest lectured at MIT, USC, and UC Berkeley Business Schools. Welcome to the show, Jack. Nice to have you on. Thanks for having me, Catherine. First question, which is really three questions, Jack, is this. Well, why write the book? Why do we need to hear the story? And what would your father, who kept his story a secret for most or all of his life, how do you think he would feel about you telling his story, which is also your story? Well, I guess to take the, the third question first, my father... It isn't that he kept the story a secret. It's that he kept the the worst parts of the story a secret. He told the story. Uh, uh, the Jewish holiday of Passover is a commemoration of Jews escaping from Egypt, whatever number of thousands of years ago. And you tell that story on the on the, during the meal on the Passover evening. And during that storytelling, my father would always tell the story of his time in concentration camp and his escapes. But the way he would tell it, he was, he was a funny, interesting, engaging guy. The way he would tell it was in an interesting and, and occasionally funny way. There is nothing funny about spending a year in, in the worst concentration camp in the Reich and then escaping. But he would make it that way. And it wasn't until I started working on the book that I discovered well, let me all stop these you. Aspects. Can I, I have to sure. stop you there? Because you said he t- would tell the story at Passover about his escape from the Nazis, but he'd tell it in a funny way. Was there anybody at the Seder table, including yourself, who would say, this isn't a funny story, Dad? Like, why are you, why are you telling actually, it this actually, way? Actually, no. It's so we tended to have small satyrs. It was just the family. And he would tell this story and we were used to the story, but it was an important part of our evening. It was, you know, the evening is generally very traditional. And this was part of our tradition. And in fact, your question is a great one because it was part of my issue. It turned out in the end, why didn't I ever say, wait a minute, you're leaving something out here. Wait a minute. This doesn't make any sense. Uh, this, can't have been as, as light or as interesting or as, as nonchalant as you're making it out to be. I never did that. And as I wrote the book, I began to explore that issue with the reader um, about why I never did that. So that was the whole aspect of the book to begin with. And then, so to go to your first question, why I wrote it, um, I wrote it because, you know, so my dad would tell the story a lot and I would tell the story when it, when it would an occasion would come up to tell it. And what I discovered was that when I told this story to people who occasionally weren't Jewish or who knew nothing of the Holocaust other than the fact that it happened, um, their reactions were visceral. They would say things like, you know, I, I, I never heard of a story like this in my life. This, I got as much as the story changed my life. The story put things that I got that are going on in my life in perspective. And I realized that in the small sampling of people that I told this story to, they're reacting that way. Well, there's got to be many, many more people who, if they heard the story, they would 
ch- it would change their lives as well. So I felt I needed to put it down on paper. And then to your last question about do we need to hear it? Well, I think yes. I mean, I think we we can never get enough reminding of what happened during that war, not just for the Jews, but for everybody. I mean, genocides continue today. And I think, you know, knowing history is a way to prevent repeating history, but we occasionally forget it. And we need to be reminded of it. And so this is another reminder. Did you ever speak or did, and, and with your father, let's say, to other Holocaust survivors? Not just We're not just talking about the Passover Seder, obviously. Did he talk about it at other times with other survivors, for instance, who may have been in your neighborhood or colleagues, friends? Um, did that ever happen? Sure. I mean, were you... Well, yes, as a matter of fact, it happened a lot. So I grew up in the south shore of Long Island in a town that happened to be populated by a lot of survivors. And when you see in the popular press and in in, in movies and books that you read, or you read about Holocaust survivors, almost exclusively you read about them as being morose, being downbeat, never having cracked a smile since the day they entered a concentration camp, never having told a joke, don't open the, um, Prince of Tides, they don't open up their, the, the parent, uh, parents of one of the characters, never even opened up the blinds in their house. My father and his friends were nothing like that. They were teenagers when they went through this, and their way of dealing with it was to be light about it. My father would play poker or gin rummy every Saturday night with some of these guys. And they cracked jokes about, remember this guard, and remember what happened to that guy? As I said, there is nothing funny about any of this. But the way they dealt with it was to put humor into it. and to They were, they were kids, and to look at it as if they were still kids looking back at it. So Do you think that's question, part of yeah, the reason why they were able to survive the way they did? Because they had... No it, question. Yeah, I mean, that's part of their persona no. and, and their youth. Because you're right, most of the stories and my friends and my parents' friends, actually, who survived the camps in different places, the story, some of it's tales of how lucky we were and how we got by, but most of it, as you say, is... is is morose, is terrifying. Um, there isn't a lot of humor in it. So that is no, very but the, different. But the way to deal with it, is, look, everybody's different. The way my father and the way the, his friends dealt with it was to inject humor, to inject sort of real world life. This, this was life. That was my time. I, I, I'm lucky I survived, whether I thank God or I believe there's no God, whatever you, your view turns out to have been because of the war. At the end of the day, you have to go on. And if you are going to go on, you should enjoy every minute. And that's how he and his friends viewed the world. What about the shame associated with it? Because I think that's a, an, a, that is a reoccurring theme. People who did survive and allowed this, to, some people take blame or see themselves as victims who allowed this to happen to them. Was that ever, ever part of, of your father's conversation or narration or dialogue with you? I think not. But then he went to Israel after the war, and he fought. Or he he was part of a, a guard group in the in the Israeli army. Um, and a lot of his friends also joined the Israeli army. And I think, of course, even the formation of the state of Israel was part of a, of the rebound, the repercussion of, of, of the attitude that, you know, some of us went like, like sheep to slaughter. But another aspect of that, and I talk about this in the book because of my, my father's experience, when he was in his hometown, the first step was that German soldiers were billeted in their house. Um, regular, actually low-level combat troops, logistics troops, who had already been on the Russian front, kind of tired of war. And my father got friendly with one or two of them. And they said to him, you know, we're warning you, 
bad things are going to happen to the Jews. And my father and his parents and his friends didn't believe it because word wasn't getting out. And then, and who would believe some of the atrocities that we actually discovered were actually going on? If you didn't know this were actually happening, why would you believe that they were building gas chambers to kill a thousand people at a time? It, it's it's beyond the pale. And so they just never went there. Yeah, well, it is. it was beyond the pale. It is a communication obviously wasn't the same, and there was no visual, so no one did really knew. And you, I mean, you can understand him not believing that that was going to happen. Um, you talk about in the book the people who saved him, who risked their lives and their own families to hide him. Let's talk about those families because that's what I'm. I, you you do discuss it in the book. Is it the Freedmans? Um, yes, yeah, so their their name is Freedmans. No, they're not Jewish. Um, they actually Mudhausen investigated that. They've got baptismal records back into the 1800s. But my question but, but so, please, is, yeah, yeah, go ahead. The, yeah, the question is, what do you think? Um, why do you think that some people are able to do that? Who take a risk and others don't? I mean, what is it in their psyche or who they are or their character um, that allows them to do that, that gives them the courage to do that? That's just a great question. You know, I investigated that to some degree. I actually met the grand the grandchildren of the people who did it, although that, that meeting was, was fairly recent and after the book had been completed. Um, you know, I, I tried to guess why they had done it. I took one guess that maybe they'd had a child who, had, who they'd lost either, you know, in combat or maybe just the child that they'd lost. That turned out not to be the case. I came down to the simple fact that these were people who wanted to do good, who ran into my father the morning after he escaped the second time and just felt on the spur of the moment, this is our shot. Um, I couldn't come up with any other reason. I think some of us are just wired that way. You know, we see something, we see someone in trouble, you always have a choice. Do I turn towards the trouble or do I turn away from the trouble? I mean, soldiers are trained to, to run to the sound of the guns, whereas most people are trained to go the other way. I think in the case of the Freedmen, they saw my dad and they said, we got gotcha. you. This is what we're going to do. And they did. And not only did they do it, my father didn't know this at the time. Uh, Mr. Friedman was a brick mason. Actually, it did not, he didn't just, you know, use bricks to build homes. He actually owned a small brick mason company with employees. And he had built a, an, an add-on to his house where he was holding, he was keeping um, SS combat troops. So SS combat troops were upstairs while my father was downstairs. This isn't just a case of this people, these people deciding, yeah, we got a place we can hide you. They were hiding him within feet of the toughest troops in all of Germany, and they they did it willingly. It's a remarkable piece of news that they did this. Yeah, it, it's a it's, it's, that's another story to be. That's a story in and of itself, or a book, or a film, or whatever, sure. right? Yeah, that's maybe your next book. But your dad yeah. died what in two <laughs> uh, in two thousand and one? Yes, he did. Yes, he's seventeen, eighteen years ago now, almost. Yes, almost. And how would you you know when he died? What kind of a relationship did you have with him in terms of discussing the holiday? At what point were you at with him, I guess, in terms of talking about his what happened to him? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. So I didn't know at the time that he died that he had gone back to visit the concentration camp. So remember, I knew that he, he was happy to tell the story. He was not your classic, quote-unquote, classic Holocaust survivor, nor were his friends. But 
the two things. One, he did Steven Spielberg's Shalot tape, which I happen to have. I remember him saying to me one day in passing, oh, by the way, I did this. Never suggested I should see it. I never asked to see it, and I didn't see it until years after he died. But then the second data point that he actually had gone back to the camp and visited it and didn't tell me. I only found out because my cousin in Israel told me because her mom knew, my, my father's sister. Um, to know that he had made that journey back and not told me was a staggering piece of information to me. And it actually was one of the reasons that spurred me to write the book. It was like, okay, well, if he didn't tell me that, what else isn't he telling me? And of course, the answer turns out to be, well, he doesn't tell me all the horrors that he went through. He just tells me the, the funny and interesting parts. As if there were any. How did did that make you feel, I guess? I mean, it was, as you say, it was Um, staggering. It was, uh, you know, you were surprised. But like from the gut, did did you feel like, well, gee, my father really, he didn't trust me? Was he protecting me? I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what was your reaction to him not? It was exactly those two reactions. Was he he not trusting me with the information or was he actually protecting me? And and as I mentioned in the book, he had a phrase he liked. He had a a number of phrases he used all the time. And one of them, of course, was um, uh, it beats the alternative was his favorite phrase. I mean, how bad things got, it beats the alternative. But another phrase he always used was you should never know. And he kind of would say it flippantly, you should never know. You ask him something t- difficult, hey, you should never know. Well, what he was saying when he said you should never know is I'm not going there. I'm not taking you to the worst that life has to throw at you because there's no reason for you to go there. And so, well, my first reaction was shock and surprise and a little bit of anger. Why wouldn't you tell me? At the end of the day, I realized it was because he loved me and it was how much he loved me. He just didn't see a reason why I needed to go to that level of, of, of despair and depth and to understand what, why did I need to understand what he went through? I think was sort of what he was thinking. So he was protecting me. And there might've been another aspect to it. Also, it might've been that he was protecting his own image in my eyes. That you know, why I don't think he necessarily wanted me to know just how tough it was for him to have gone through this and to look back at it. Uh, he was always this, this man who had done the impossible. He was an incredible, um, person and uh i think to to know that in fact he was more human than that maybe he didn't want to go there with me yeah I, the word degradation comes into mind maybe he didn't want to, you to see him in those uh, uncompromising is really not the word in those really degrading positions that he found himself in that he had to cope with and deal with i mean that you talk about in the book obviously as you go back and follow his journey but he did as a son didn't want you to see him that way I'm also thinking this is another question because I know you've mentioned that your mother died when you were young, 13 years old. Your brother was nine. There's a lot of loss in your family, a a lot of loss for him. I mean, he lost his wife. uh, He he lost his childhood, his adolescence, all of those things. That's a lot of loss to have to deal with. Yeah, let's talk about that. I think that's exactly right. Um, And, you know, look, so I wanted to go into the Army when I was 18 years old, and he's like, you're not going. Um, And exactly what you just said, I lost my family, I lost my wife, I'm not losing my son. Whether the risk was there, of course the risk. The risk was there crossing the street, but the risk is really there when you're in the military. And he's like, you're not going. Um, So as as I write in the book, so okay, so fine. So I did other things. I 
I fly planes and I jump out of them and I play hockey and I run marathons and cycle long distances and you know do a <laughs> so a Jack. The lesson to be learned is you, as much as you try to protect your kids, forget it because they're going to find another way out. <laughs> is that gonna, it? They'll find some way to do it. Yeah. Exactly. Like my father said, "Did you really have to go flying tonight?" I go, "Well, yeah, yes, Dad. Actually, I do have to go flying." Um. So, exactly right. Uh, yeah. So okay. So this is this is. This is a journey for you, obviously. Um, you before you went and before you went back and and, and traced his steps during you know his con- when he was in the when he escaped twice. Um, along the way, I mean, you talk about it in the book. We don't want to give the whole book away either, but um, was it like sort of what was it for you in tr- each pay you know each I guess each step of the journey? It's, you're seeing your father in a different light, or did it go back and forth, or how did your emotions change towards him as you began your journey into what happened to him? Well, I think that. So, okay, I had always had my father on a pedestal because of what he'd done. But when I actually walked the grounds of the concentration camp, when I, the, the Stone Crusher, the building where he worked for seven, eight months uh, in Guzan, the camp right next to Munhausen, when I, it's still, the building is still there. It's actually part of a granite mill. It's no longer a mine, but, but the mill's still operating. It's owned by the same family that's owned it for 100 years, but they didn't own it during the war. When I walked those grounds, I could, I could feel the air temperature. I could feel the breeze. I could smell the surrounding area. I, it, to, to know that he went through the same things was, was shattering to me because, because you start to ask yourself, well, could I have done this? When I stood in the intersection, the first time he escaped, it, it's early in the book, so I'm not giving too much away, but in the first time he escaped, he, he turned with refugees. He, he was, his line of march was going straight. Refugees were intersecting with them. He turned and got caught up with them. Could I have done that? When I stood in the intersection in the middle of a, of a bright uh, Labor Day weekend day, and decided and, and felt what it felt like and thought to myself, could I have made this turn? I don't know the answer to that. And part of the book that I think differentiates it from other Holocaust books is that I do talk about me as a second generation child uh, of someone who essentially did the impossible. What do I wrestle with? And the things I wrestle with, among other things, are could I have been that guy? Could I have, forget the luck involved, it just in terms of the willpower to make the turn or to get up in the morning and work at that rock mine day after day, could I have done that the way he did it? And by the way, let's not leave out the fact that he was a 160-pound man that weighed 80 pounds at the time he escaped. It was, you know, to, to, to write the book and to have to dig into my own emotions and those of my father while I'm writing it took me to places I just never thought I would ever go. Well, where are some of those places? Do you think you could have well, done it? I, you know, it's, I, I, I've actually never gone all the way to the end to say, but of course I think I could have done it. But so I, there is a, a friend of mine who had gone through Navy, he was a Navy SEAL and gone through Navy SEAL training, which, which is essentially the hardest training in the military. And he, he knew my father's story. And he looked at me one day and he said, forget it. He, don't even think about it twice. Nothing we've ever done in our training compares with it, you can't even put it in the same zip code as to what a concentration camp survivor had to do to survive on a daily basis. It, you know, again, to, to be half your body weight and to continue not to be fed and to continue to have to work 12-hour days and to have no horizon, to, not, to know that there is no end in sight for this 
you have to have a level of willpower um, that just, you know, is not describable. And I think added to that is what I always wonder about is how, yes, you survive the camps as you're describing it, but then how do you survive afterwards? How do you get married and have two sons and become successful at business when you've lived through that? How does that affect your psyche? I'm not sure that I would be able to do the second part of it, even if I survived the first part of it. And yet my father did and my father's friends did because I I think... You know, look, everybody survives these things differently. But my father's view of the world was, as I said, he had these phrases that he lived by. And one of them was, it beats the alternative. No matter how bad things would get for him, it, it had nothing to do with how bad things had been. And so everything else in life was a piece of cake. Um, you know, things got rough. My, 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 I talk in the book about the time my brother essentially cut his head open in the, in the corner of a piece of furniture. And my father's like, eh, it's not so terrible. And, you know, he just took care of it. He just solved it. Everything in life is solvable because you realize how deep down you could go, how much resource you really have. Even when you think you're at zero, there's still a lot of room under zero for you to keep operating in. When you know all that, I think you think the rest of life is going to be easy. And for him... It, it, yes, he lost his wife, um, and uh, he's had other, you know, his businesses went up and down, but everything else was so much easier from that point forward. He, he loved being alive, and so did his friends. Yeah, so he viewed the challenges, your challenges, my challenges, maybe very different. I mean, I relate to that in a way. I was in the Peace Corps with my ex-husband and uh, lived under... nothing like concentration camp. I'm not even making that comparison. But you couldn't eat the food, and you got sick, and you had no medicine, and there were bugs and all kinds of stuff. This is So that experience really colored the rest of my life in terms of, hey, you know what, wherever I am, there's always a doctor in the United States. There's There's always water you can get. There's always food that you can eat that you don't have to boil necessarily. And it does change you, and it does give you that kind of a perspective on a Obviously, very different level than than being in a concentration camp. Of course. Yeah, yeah. So it does make sense. Well, let's kind of fast forward to yourself, your own family. How did all has this impacted not just you but the rest of your family, your children? And I think you have grown children, as I understand. Yes, I do. Well, so for instance, um, my my son is physically disabled. He's he's a bright, good-looking kid who can't walk, Um, and he's well aware of what his grandfather went through and, and, and he views his his challenges in life as just that. It's just something he has to deal with. One of my daughters did Teach for America and she taught essentially last chance high school kids in the Chicago area in, in the charter school. And she used to turn to the kids and say, if you guys think I'm tough, you should see my dad. And if you think my dad is tough, you should see his father. But in other words, what my daughter picked up from her grandfather was a toughness to deal with things in life because as tough as it is for her, it's nowhere near as tough as it is for the kids that she's teaching. And she was aware of that, is aware of that because she's teaching them now in Chicago. Um, and so I think it, 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 and, oh, and, and her identical twin, by the way, is, is becoming a social worker. So I think what it did for my kids is it made them realize that there are many, many people in the world who have it far less fortunate than they do, and they're going to do something about that. I think that was their primary. And, and of course, there was a, this toughness to them. They said, well, if that's my grandfather, I've got the same genes. I've got to have a lot of that in me already. 
Well, and it also has to do with you, obviously. I mean, the message that you've given to your kids, your son with his disability, your daughter, social worker, and your daughter, teacher, uh, you've done something right. Yes, I, I, I appreciate it. Me and my ex-wife, yes, I think you, we'll take some credit for that. But that, again, comes from, from what, they, what we've seen around us. And what, what I certainly saw around me was, you know, the way my dad raised me. And the way my dad raised me, we basically raised my kids the same way. We gave, we gave them latitude uh, to make mistakes. They made plenty of mistakes. And then they ended up on a path that I think is just an outstanding path, all three of them. You know, like, well, the funny thing is, just sort of as an aside, my dad... I, you know, I got caught cheating in high school once. And my dad, I wasn't sure if my dad was angrier at me for cheating or for getting caught cheating. But <laughs> So there was a, that aspect to him and my upbringing and, and what I imparted to my kids as well. So that was the nadir of your <laughs> existence? You cheated yeah, once in high school? Was. I never um, did it again. A, you never did it again. We have a couple minutes left. So, Jack, tell us a website that we can go to more information about you and also more information about your book and what you're doing. Sure. Well, so the book's website is deathmarchescape.com, all one word. Um, there's a little bit about me. It's really about my dad. There's, my father has a website, David Hirsch, H-E-R-S-C-H, davidhirsch.com. But you can also get there from deathmarchescape.com. Um, so that tells you about the book. You can order the book through the site or you can go to Amazon or, or Barnes and Noble or to a, a brick and mortar store and get it that way. So what do you mean your, fa- your father has a, a website? It's a website just about him. What is that? Yes, it's a website about him and his upbringing and his experience during the war. It, it's, a, it's a, a very small sort of skim the surface of the book. Um, with a little bit of follow-on past the book, sort of what happened to him after the war. But the book only goes through the war with him, um, what happened after the war. And, and um, then there's a little bit about me having gone back and some photos that I took that aren't in the, some that are in the book, some that are not in the book, and a little bit of, of story around that as well. My last comment is my father was in the war on a sub-chaser, and he never said a word about it. He never spoke about the war at all. And I, I, it, it's interesting, after reading your book, I began talking about that and thinking about my own experience. Why did he never talk to me about what he was doing during the well, war? You know, what's so interesting about that is one of the outcomes I really wanted for this book was I wanted people to realize that no matter who their parents were, whether they were corporate CEOs or delivery men or homemakers or everything in between, um, military experience or not, they have paths and they have lives. And, and those lives and paths affect us. Whether we know it or not, there is impact. And I think it behooves us to know what our parents went through. I'm sure our parents want to tell us on some level or another. We should be asking before it's too late. Yep. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Um, Thank you, Catherine. Thank you for having me. Jack Hirsch, author of Death March Escape, the remarkable story of a man who twice escaped the Nazi Holocaust. Great having you here today. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 